If you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Ecclesiastes as we return to this amazing book, often neglected book, uh, but an amazing book. Today I will be focusing and preaching verses 6, 10 through 7, 14. And if you don't have a Bible, really want to encourage you to grab one. Uh, you can either grab your phone, follow on your phone, um, or there's a Bible in the chair or the pew in front of you somewhere. Grab that, follow along, and you will get much more out of the sermon. Page 381, I believe, in your pew Bible. Um, if you're struggling to find it in your Bible, just go to the middle of your Bible, open it up. You'll probably be at Psalms. Go over a few books, and you'll find your way to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 6. And I'll start reading in verse 10. And if you've made your way there... We ask you to stand as we honor the reading of the Word of God. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For her knows what is good for man, while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In 1915, a herald of destruction descended upon the town of Enterprise, Alabama. The boll weevil is an invasive species of beetle from Mexico. It arrived in the area around Enterprise, Alabama, and the main industry there was cotton. And so farmers there were accustomed to uh, plowing as much land as they possibly could because it was so profitable to farm cotton. Well, the bull, the bull weevil uh, came in, and this plague absolutely destroyed all of the farms. Absolute devastation, total loss. So they tried again the second year to go back to cotton, and it happened again. So think if you're a farmer for two entire years, your entire life is completely destroyed. Many people did go uh, bankrupt and lose everything. But some people stuck it out, and they said, you know what, this third year we'll try something different. So they decided to plant peanuts. And peanuts proved to be so profitable, it made the people actually incredibly wealthy. Because the appetite for peanuts in the market was <clears throat> just insatiable. And the ground was so uh, fertile that their harvest was amazing. And so they experienced prosperity like they could never have even possibly imagined before. <clears throat> so 85 miles north of Panama City, Florida, there stands a statue in Enterprise, Alabama, the first statue ever made 
to an agricultural pest. There is a 13-foot-high statue of a woman holding a black beetle over her head. And a sign on the monument reads this. In profound appreciation of the boll weevil and what it has done as the herald of prosperity, this monument has been erected by the citizens of Enterprise, Coffee County, Alabama. This is the reality uh, in the world in which we live, east of Eden after the fall, is that you're going to face times of adversity in this life. This is inevitable. You're going to face times of pain and calamity. And when we are in those times of adversity, we also have another problem, and that's our limited perspective. We can't even see beyond the horizon of today into tomorrow. And so these twin realities that suffering and pain and adversity exist in the world, and we experience them, coupled with our limited perspective and our ability to even see out of the adversity that we're in, they combine to create a tremendous heartache for people and stress and anxiety, contributing all the more to the suffering caused by adversity. Adversity, it's an inevitability. You're going to face it. There's going to be calamities in your life. You're going to have troubled times. You're going to have uh, afflictions and sickness and pain. And you might say, well, I haven't yet. My life's been really good. It's been really perfect. Just wait. Just wait. Adversity's coming. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. You can't run from it. You can't deny it. Uh, It's coming. It's a reality of the world in which you live. Everyone will face it. Thanksgiving and Christmas, they often remind us of this. It's a very stark reminder. You look around, you look around, and you know, everyone is enjoying each other's company and fellowship, and people are laughing, but then you realize um, someone's not here. Somebody died. You can't ignore it. And when adversity, suffering, and pain, <clears throat> when they come, we start, we start to ask questions, usually, because we don't have the perspective to see everything. We say, why did this happen? Could things not have been different than they are? Does God, does God really care? Does he care about me? Is, is he even in control? Is God really in control of things? Um. What, what possible good could ever come out of this? These are the questions that, that, that we ask. We start to ask these things. Solomon takes up this perplexing issue in his own unique, unique way, as we have seen. This is part of the brilliance of this book. The wisest man in the world, of course, he would approach this topic in his own way. So he takes up this issue of life under the sun, east of Eden, and after the fall, uh, the reality of adversity. Um, and pain as part of life. And he, he takes it and he weaves it together with some other themes. Obviously, God's sovereignty, but also wisdom. Wisdom and adversity. And that's really the focus of this passage this morning. It comes at the very end in 7.14. If you look back at your text, you'll see it. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. That's easy right there. That's the easy part. But in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other. That's a tough one. That's the focus. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. The day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. And wisdom, wisdom is knowing that that's true and believing it. So wisdom then is what we need to have in order to go into adversity and to see with the eyes of faith and to survive, to persevere. So my purpose then is pretty simple, to prepare you to face adversity. Adversity, suffering, they're always better addressed beforehand. It's better that you have the theology down before you go into it. And so that's my goal, and my hope is to prepare you to face adversity and 
to help you to see that in order to go into adversity, you have to take on a different posture, a posture of humility, knowing that you don't have the perspective to see beyond even the day that you're alive in right now. So you can't possibly see any good that could ever come from what's going on in your life. But I hope that this enables you to trust God, the God that declares the end from the beginning. And so today we'll see three lessons concerning adversity and wisdom. Three lessons concerning adversity and wisdom and your life. This book is unbelievably practical in nature. So that's why I say three lessons concerning adversity and wisdom for your life, because the truths that come out of here are really just like timeless truths of wisdom. The book is so relevant, you could hand it to a non-believer and they could get it. They could say, how does Solomon know what I don't tell anybody else, what I struggle with, um, the temptations that try to lure me? the way I'm prone to seek satisfaction in the things of the world. How does Solomon know all of these things? He knows it because he's lived it all. And that's what he's examining, life under the sun, uh, life in this world, uh, east of Eden, after the fall. And he's gone on these examinations. He's already taken us down several. What can satisfy a man under the sun? What can fill that longing in your heart? Can anything do it? He's tried... He tried wisdom once, even. Knowledge, uh, riches, power, money, women, alcohol, entertainment. He tried all of it, and he's taken us down those journeys. He's also taught us about things like worship. And, and then last time we were together, he warned us in this long section about the idolatry of money. What happens to a person when that becomes their love? And now he shifts again to take up another incredibly practical and relevant discussion, the discussion of adversity and wisdom. So I believe most incredibly relevant to us for that reason is that this is universal. Everybody faces it. And how will you face it, I wonder? That's what I, that's what I wonder about you. As I sit in the office and think about this, these things, how will you face how you, will you face pain and adversity and suffering in your life? Will you face it like a pagan? Some professing Christians face it like a pagan. <clears throat> they bad things happened to me because I wasn't good enough for God. If I were only good enough and did better, like if I left that sin and, and I followed God better and I was more devoted to Him, bad things wouldn't have happened to me. I don't want you to face it like a pagan. Well, you face it like a deist. God doesn't care. He doesn't care about us. He made the universe and set it in motion. Maybe he's not even good anyway, but he doesn't care. Maybe you curse him and be done with it. Or will you be wise? Will you use wisdom and face adversity like a Christian? And will you find in your adversity the means God has given you to love Jesus Christ more than you did before? The one who has known adversity and pain greater than any human to ever live. So today let's look, because I want you to face adversity like a Christian, three lessons concerning adversity and wisdom in your life. Number one, if you're taking notes, there are two wisdoms, two wisdoms that are in conflict in your life. Two wisdoms in conflict in your life. And one of them is the origin of all adversity in the world. Okay, so what are the two? I'll just tell you the two right up front. Number one, there is the wisdom of God, obviously. That's the one that we want. Or what's called the wisdom from above. But there's also another wisdom, that is the wisdom of man, or the wisdom of the world, or the wisdom of this age. 1 Corinthians 2.6 says, Yet among the mature do we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age. There are two competing ones. 
wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And then in, in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians, he calls this the wisdom of the world. James in uh, chapter 3, 3, 13 through 15, he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. There is a wisdom from above, from God. There is a worldly wisdom, which is demonic. The wisdom Solomon wants us to have and for you to have is obviously the wisdom that is from above. God wants you to have it. He wants your life to be ruled by it. He wants you to possess it. But that means you have to take a different posture, maybe. And this is going to be a challenging passage, maybe, for some. You have to take a different posture. Posture of humility. That God is God, and you are not. And I say, that's obvious, because we're not here to worship me. But the God of the Bible is a God who is sovereign. Over every single atom and molecule and planet, physical law. And that's what Solomon's going to drive us to. And it takes a posture of humility to accept that. God is God, you are not, and He alone knows what is good for you. All adversity, all pain, all suffering, all calamity stem from this. One question which was sought at the beginning of time. Who knows what is good for man? Who knows what is good for man? Who has the power and the authority to determine that which is good for man? And man's answer, guess, who, guess what man's answer is? It's always man. We do. Now there are allusions to Genesis 3, or 1 through 3, all throughout this book. And then there are something that you could call maybe a very strong allusion, maybe not an allusion, but a direct reference to in his own creative way. The word Adam or Adam dominates verses 10 to 12. Chapter 6, 10 to 12 is used four times. It almost acts as a structure of these verses. Adam, 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 Adam. That's what you're going to read. And here's the main thrust of it. Verse 10, it communicates the idea of power and control and authority and sovereignty. Whatever has come to be has already been named. God creates by speaking. He names things. The day, the night, the land, the sea, Adam. Whatever has come to be, that is, that exists, has already been named. I'll say it in a plain English speaking. Whatever happens in the present has already been predetermined by God. Oh. Can that really be what he's saying? That's an immensely strong theological statement. But one that you have to nail down. Whatever happens in the present has already been predetermined by God. That is what he says when he says whatever has come to be has already been named. Now, it's important to have this nailed down, especially when it comes to times of adversity, because the question is, is God really God? Is God really in control down here? Because when I look around the world, know about you, it looks like man is in total control. You look everywhere, and you can identify with Solomon as he laments what he has seized as he looks out upon the earth in chapters 3 and 4. Everywhere I look is oppression and injustice and pain. And you think, God's got even in control down here? Is he paying attention to what's going on? You look out east of Eden, you see all of the oppressions. But we would be wrong to conclude that. And Solomon, he gets to this right off the bat. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And some, we don't like that. We really don't like it. I remember the first time I encountered these truths, I really wrestled with it. It's like, you know, that, that poem, the poem Invictus. 
you know the poem, right? It's like the poem that captures the human heart. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. That's the natural human condition, right? And that's what Adam, Adam thought that too. Adam. Verse 10 continues, and it is known what man is. What, what is man? Genesis 1 through 3. Man is from the dust, and to the dust he will return. Man is created. Man is created being of the infinite uncreated. And you can fight it all you want. You're finite. You're going back to the dust. Life's going to reveal it to you. You're just a man. You're just a woman. You're not God. It's known what man is. Usually I fall asleep at night listening to the sweet, delightful sounds of the ringing in my ears. But last night was a little different. For some reason, how I was laying, I could kind of feel my own heartbeat. And I was, as I was, I could almost hear it. And I was thinking, like, so crazy, we don't even think about it ever. I'm not making my heartbeat. It's just beating. And one day it's going to stop. One day it's not going to beat anymore. I'm just, I'm just a man. Can't even control my own heart. Verse 10, he, he says, and, and it's not what man is, and, and he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Can man contend with God? Adam tried. Adam and Eve, they tried to contend with God. They disputed with him. What's the dispute? Who gets to, to determine what's right? Who gets to determine good and evil? God has said that this is good. I've given you everything in the entire world, and everything is good, but you can only not have one thing. But Eve, she was tempted with a different wisdom. And she saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes and to be desired to make one wise. But what wisdom is that? God's already given them true wisdom, true wisdom from above, that which is actually good. Wisdom from God, fearing God, living in God's world, God's way. That's true wisdom. Revering God, worshiping Him, and living according to His design. But there's a different wisdom from below. And they desired to dispute with God to see who could determine and who knew what was good for man. And this is the origin of all adversity. Every pain and suffering you will ever face in this life, whether it is sickness, whether it is self-inflicted, whether someone else does it to you, whether it's a natural disaster, is faced, it, it all is traced back to this first point in human history where man tried to contend against God because they thought they knew what was good for man. So man is cast out. He's cast out of the garden, out of paradise, uh, out of God's presence. And then now Ecclesiastes examines the world after the fact. And so the question then remains, east of Eden, okay, man is cast out. But is God still in control? Is God still God? And the answer is yes, undoubtedly. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And verse 11 seems to be that this is the argumentation. No matter how many people sit around and talk about the fall or the problem of evil and suffering or try to examine God's sovereignty in light of evil and suffering or contend with God that, that they don't like the way things are, you know, I've heard many people say, you know, when I get to, whenever I meet God, I'm going to ask him, fill in the blank, futility, vanity, no amount of words. The more words, the more futility. You can't contend with God. Isaiah 45, 9-12 says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Can a potter argue with, can a, can a pot argue with the potter? Verse 12, who knows what is good for man? That's the question of the day. 
That's the question of the day right there, isn't it? That's the question in Solomon's day too. That's the question in Adam and Eve's day. Uh, but today, no doubt. No doubt you've already thought of many things in your mind. Who gets to tell man what's good for man? Now, we, we think we do, and we distort everything that God has said was good. Don't we? Do we live in a culture that has taken and twisted everything that God has made in the order that he has made it? People worship the creatures rather than the creator. People worship the planet itself. People take God's design for sex and twist it into pervert it into all kinds of unspeakable things. And people take even men and women's roles and confuse them. But even worse than that, they'll take what is male and female and attempt to do away with it completely. You live in a world where man is trying to determine what is good for man. And what's the problem with that? Well, that changes with time. What is good for man today is not what is good for man in a hundred years. Go to a different culture. Go to a different culture. And just not, not very long ago, in many of these cultures, you know, if you died, they would, uh, and your wife didn't die, they'd put you out to sea and put your wife on top of your body, and, you know, they would blow some horns and shoot a flaming arrow and burn your wife up on your body. And that was totally good. Changes with time, culture, place. But who can tell man what is good? And the obvious answer that's screaming at you is God. God tells us what is good. That is wisdom. How to live in God's world according to God's way so that we might prosper. And verse 12 continues with another question. This last question kind of dominates the last part of the book of Ecclesiastes. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And the answer is obvious. You, you certainly can't. You, you can't tell what will be for you tomorrow. God. God can. Here's the application. Before you face adversity, and you will, for sure, for calamity, sickness, death, pain, suffering, all things that happen under the sun, it looks like chaos is reigning supreme. That man is really dethroned God, east of Eden. But even man's rebellion, which plunged the world into chaos and sin, that even with all of that, this truth still remains, that God is still God, east of Eden. Whatever exists has already been named. And then the two wisdoms, they're in conflict with your life. They never stop being. They never stop being in conflict, the two wisdoms, the wisdoms of the world and the wisdom of God. So humble yourself. Take a posture of reverence. And dare I say this, know your place. You're not God. Flee the wisdom of the world. Receive the wisdom of God. That's the first lesson concerning adversity and wisdom. There are two wisdoms in conflict for your life, and there always, there always will be. Second, wisdom is essential for living your life. You probably noticed uh, that the text changes, and so he enters into these proverbial statements, and so he wants to introduce to us this idea about wisdom. Okay, wisdom, where do we get it? What, a, what, a, what does someone who's wise look like, and... Um, how good is it? It's kind of the way this unfolds. And he presents it in a series of better than statements. So you'll read it and you'll see that this is better than that. You guys ever have that type of argument? I know you have, right? Who's better? Who's better, uh, LeBron or Michael Jordan? Who is it? Huh? I, got, I, got, I, got, I got his attention over here. I said, because everyone who ever watches basketball has had this argument. Who's better, LeBron or Jordan? And the answer is Jordan. I just want to make you guys aware. How about this past Thursday? Here, here, here's one. Is pecan pie or pumpkin pie? What's better, pecan pie or pumpkin pie? And it all depends. It all depends really on one thing for me. The person who made the pecan pie, I want to know. I want to hear them say the word. Do they say it pecan pie or do they say pecan pie? 
If they say pecan pie, guaranteed it's better than the pumpkin pie. That's just free tip for you. That's, that's like wisdom that's from above. <laughs> pecan pie, then that lady knows how to make it. How about this one, real books or e-books? Real, real books or e-books? Real? Some people are like, e, you might think I like e-books better because I preach from a tablet. I have my kind of notes here. Um, but I like real books. I take direct to physical therapy, you know, up in the city, and I sit there and, and I read. And I, so I'm reading a book, and this lady walks up to me, you know, uh, don't know who she is, some stranger. She says, what are you doing? I said, what do you, what do you mean? She's like, well, you're reading a real book. She's like, I haven't seen anybody read a real book in, like, years. And I was, I was like, hmm. And I, I thought the way she was talking to me was a little bit too friendly. You know what I mean? A little too friendly. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I like, I like to read real books. And so then I hold up my book on demonology to my nose. And I smell it. And she backs away slow. She backs away real slow. Solomon, he uses a series of better-than statements in this section to instruct us. Um, it's a good teaching technique. And these are going to be surprising because some of these are really counterintuitive when we read them. But these first set, 7, 1 through 4, if you look at your Bible, really are communicating one idea. There's, there's kind of one driving thing that he's going at, and that's this idea that reflection is better than escapism. I don't even know if escapism's really a word, um, but let's go with it. Reflection's better than escapism. He starts with a no-brainer, one no one's going to argue with. Uh, who, who could contest with this, that a good name is better than precious ointment or perfume? Who can, that's an obvious, right? Everybody wants to have a good name, to be known as someone with uh, integrity, honesty, they're trustworthy, you can count on them. Because there are a lot of rich people that have a lot of fine perfumes and very expensive ointments, and uh, you wouldn't trust them. So a good name, even if you're poor, is better than to be rich and to have fancy things. It's one no one can argue with, and so he kind of sets us up a little bit. But then he says some stuff that seems strange, kind of crazy. The day of death is better than the day of birth. And you say, because you're a normal person, how can that possibly be? How happy are you when someone is born? I mean, a baby is born, your own child or your grandchild, it's one of the happiest days of your entire life. How can, how can the day of death be better than that? The funerals are like the worst, right? They're the worst. But he continues on. Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Same thing. Same theme. Why? How could it possibly be to go to the house of mourning? And the answer is right there, right in the middle, looking at you, right in the face. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Um, a funeral will force you to reflect upon your life. A funeral will make you. Happiness and joy, they're, they're amazing. They're amazing things, and celebration is, is great. They're great things, but they don't make you wise. A funeral forces reflection. You come to face-to-face -face with your own mortality, and you begin to examine your life. Am I, am I, really, am I really living? Right? Am I just existing? What am I doing? Am I really loving my family? Am I, am I loving God? Am I fleeing sin? Or am I thinking one day I'll get around to it? Do I know, do I really know God? Maybe you're not a Christian, you go to a funeral and you think, one day I'm going to die. Do I really know God? Am I really going to stand before this God? I mean, these are the type of things a, for, a funeral, it forces upon you. And in the reflection comes wisdom. Um, verses 3 and 4, they continue on with this. Sorrow is better than laughter. Same thing. For the same thing, the heart of the wise, it's in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What is that? It's like, you could say, it's like a pleasure house. It's a place where you go to get sensory pleasures. 
And here's the lesson. Reflection is better than escapism. Humans, we are strange, right? The one thing that happens to all of us, we never think about, ever. We'll do everything that we could ever do possibly to never think about it, that one day we're going to die. So we create all of these ways to escape that reality, escapism, whether it's work or play or whatever it is. But funerals, they, they have this strange way, don't they, of really making you examine life. He says a fool lives for escapism. But the heart of a wise is in, the, is in the house of mourning because there they are forced to reflect and they can find real wisdom. I had a professor once, he looked like Colonel Sanders. Uh, like, I mean, just like him. It was so strange. He even had a southern accent. You know, it, it, he even had the suits and everything like that. And um, been a pastor for like 45 years, pastoral ministries professor. He's, he's actually a, not anybody that, you know, people in the Christian world think is worth anything, but the ones that really are when it counts, those that will be great in the kingdom, people like him, the no-names. But he said one day, he said, uh, you're going to be tempted at a funeral to preach somebody into heaven. And he said, don't you ever do it. Don't you ever do it. He said... The funeral is the place that you get. It's the one place where you can really, because of the situation, make an impact. And he told this example of his own life. He said, my brother was in a biker gang, and uh, like, you know, like a legit biker gang, you know, like the ones, you know, they, all the, a lot of people came back from the wars, they started biker gangs. You got the Hells Angels, all that stuff, and he was one of those guys. And so he hated God. And he died. So at the funeral, he says, his biker gang shows up. And they came in. They're all laughing. And they actually brought in, like, beer, like cases of beer. And they're cracking beer and drinking. And they're smoking. They're, like, smoking cigars and smoking weed in church. Can you imagine if you, like, here they are. And he says, he starts a sermon. My brother hated God. And my brother is in hell. And you're going to die. That's real boldness. That's cutting right through the escapism. See, that's what they're living in, escapism. And that's forcing them to the reality. You're going to die. My funeral's going to be dark. I'm just telling you right now. It's going to be dark, George. It's going to be dark. In fact, I'm, I'll probably have them open the casket the whole time. The whole time. You just see me. There's a dead guy in here. You're just going to be faced with that reality. There's going to be no escapism at my funeral. I might even have them prop me up like they did in the West. You remember in the West they would stand them up? You know what I'm saying? And then it's just there. You're, you're laughing, but what do people do at funerals now? It's just escapism. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, like a celebration of life. The only light in my funeral is going to be the gospel preached by a preacher. And I guess you could say, in other words, I'm going to have a Christian funeral. As we reflect on death and then we remember the resurrection of Christ and that He is our hope. We do everything we can to escape this reality, but wisdom is found in these sad places. Reflection is better than escapism. Rebuke, man, time is going fast. Rebuke is better than praise. It's better to be rebuked than to be praised. The fool gives you what you want to hear. You sing a nice little song about yourself. He says that's as good as like thorns that are fuel under a pot. You're making a stew. You need some quick fuel. You throw some thorns in there. There goes the fire. But that's not gonna. That's not gonna keep it cooking. It's not. It's not worth anything. Proverbs twenty-seven five through six says, "Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of the enemy of an enemy." That's counterintuitive to the world's wisdom. To be rebuked is better for your soul than to be praised. Man, they've got entire parents now raising their kids on nothing but praise. 
And you can take it from me, like I've raised a couple of kids. Um, that ain't going to work. That's not going to work. And that doesn't work for us either. If we want to be conformed to the image of Christ, if somebody loves you, they're going to rebuke you. Just one such occasion arose for me this past spring to be rebuked. Um, now, I'm a sinner, and I still have a lot of work to do. You know, your pastors, they're all sinners. You guys surprised by that or not? You know, everybody's got their flaws. All your pastors, they've got their things, their sins. Now, Dave, Dave cheers. He roots for the Air Force when they play Army. I know you, you can't believe that it's true, but he does. Right? Um, Parker loves Excel spreadsheets. He thinks they're good fun. Uh, George wears flannel, long sleeve t-shirt, long, long sleeve shirts all year long, even in August. Uh, and Philip, Philip's got his his deals, you know. Um, he just smiles too much. <laughs> That's Philip's thing. Too much smiles, and I can be a little too confrontational. I know you don't believe it, but it's true. And this past spring, one such thing happened. I got into an altercation with an adult. I'll keep it vague to protect all parties involved. Um, I believe justified, justified confrontation, that it was right, that I was in the right. But the way that I went about it, um, my argumentation, uh, the, the forcefulness, the forcefulness of my words, um, not good. Um, you know, you got to be careful who you spend time with because they influence you. They actually change who you are. They influence you a lot. So let's just say there was a little bit too much Martin Luther that day. Right? Too much Luther. Um, it needed to be said, but maybe don't say it in a way that makes people want to burn you afterward. You know. And so I get into the car, and when I get like that, it takes me a minute to settle down. Get in the car, drive home with Angie, and you know my blood is still up. And we drive home. She doesn't say anything to me at all. She's just sitting there listening. And we get pulled into the driveway about 15 minutes later. And she could have, she could have like given me, a, like showered me with praise and kisses. She could be like, you know, you know what? I, I love how you stand up for our kids. I love it. I love that about you. You're a great dad. Um, you're not afraid of confrontation. You're not afraid to fight for the things that you think are right. Jay, I love, I love it about you. And I'd have been like, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's all true. That's all true. But she didn't. She didn't. Instead, like a good shield maiden, she unsheaths a sharp Jerusalem blade and stabs me in the heart with the word of God. And it worked. Uh, it was a, a, a blow well struck. And so in shame, I had to drive, drop her off and drive all the way back, find the man, and apologize. That's what we need. Rebuking. That's where you find wisdom. You find wisdom not in fools who are going to praise you with everything about you. But those that care enough about you to be like, hey, no, that ain't, that ain't it, man. That's not the way we do things. That's not the way Christians behave. We got to have those people around us. We need it. That's how we are conformed to the image of Christ. 7-7 seven, seven is a warning, like a warning to the wise. It kind of it goes back to the uh, big warnings about idolatry of money. Because remember, he said um, in chapter 6, what advantage is the wise over the fool? Well, if they both love money, there's no advantage at all. And that's what he says here. If you are wise even, you can be prone to being extorted and being bribed. And then you just become a fool. So a warning. If you're wise and everything's good to go, just remember, um, money is a temptation for you to jettison all of the wisdom you have acquired from the Lord and to compromise yourself and to go along with the world. 8 through 10 is patience is better than pride. 
Better is the end of a thing than uh, the beginning of a thing. A, a foolish person has no patience. They can't wait to see, you know, to gather maybe all the evidence or to see or to know that things often work out in the end, and so they make hasty decisions. They're impatient. So the end of a thing is better than the beginning. Uh, the wise will avoid anger, verse 9. Um, to be, have anger lodged in your heart is what a fool has, and an angry person is offended by anything and everything. And the fool is controlled by anger. How many, how many people in prison today, if you ask them what happened, they will say, well, I just got so mad. It would, it would be a lot. It would be an interesting study. I just got so mad. And fill in the blank, you know. Anger. Consumes. The more it's fed the bigger it becomes, only a fool is controlled by anger. But the wise cultivate patience, patience, uh, fruit of the Spirit. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has, hasty, has a hasty temper exalts folly, Proverbs 14, 29. Then we see in verse 10, Say not where are the former days than these. See, he's telling us here in these three verses, what does a wise person look like? What does a wise person look like? They're patient not prone to anger, and they don't live in the past. Fools live in the past. It's just another form of escapism. You're just indulging, you're just indulging yourself in something that's gone. But the wise know the past is gone. And there's only the, this present reality in which I live, but if I'm living in the past, I'm not living in the present. And some people live their whole lives in the past. Maybe things were better, they think, back then, or something happened to them back then, and they can never move on. He says a wise person doesn't live in the past. You can't live there. That's just another way to escape. A Christian can never live in the past. The days, the days in the past were never better for a Christian, ever. I don't know if you realize that or not. I've said it before many times. Our best days, no matter where you are, are always future. Always. Christ is coming again. The resurrection is happening. Now put off the old self fully. But even until then, my best days should always be future. Future-oriented. Ephesians 4, 22-24. We are commanded to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Well, you can't do that if you're living in the past. And the past is my old self. And I should be putting him there every day. So I don't want to go back there. Paul will also say in Philippians 2, what does he say? He said, I press on. He's striving like an athlete running toward the finish line, toward the future. Not stuck in the past. Running toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. 7, 11 through 12 is that wisdom is better than wealth. Um, here's the comparison that, yeah, money can give you some good stuff. Money and inheritance is like land. That's what's meant there by that inheritance in those verses. But what is it to have money in an or land in an agricultural society? It's to have stability. It's to have some form of wealth. And what can money give you? Protection. Protection from calamity, from ruin. So all that's acknowledged. But wisdom, wisdom's like that. Wisdom does all of that stuff too, he says. But it does one extra thing that money can't do. Money can't give you a life. Let's say that. Money can't give you a life. We learned that from the money idolatry sermon, that there are people that get everything they ever wanted in this life. They have all of the wealth and all of the money that they could ever imagine. And what did we learn previously? They can't sleep at night. They don't enjoy life. And this is, this is the wild one. And all their days they eat in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and in anger. Money can't make you live. That's not living. That's just existing. Wisdom can make you live. Because what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in wisdom, we are able to live in the fallen world and actually live in relationship with God. We're able to have a higher life that we're meant to have. And, and even beyond what Solomon says here about that, 
We know, because we have the New Testament, that there was someone who came, a greater Solomon, someone wiser than Solomon, the, the greater king of peace. And he told us about true wisdom and eternal life. To know God and Jesus Christ is to have eternal life. He'll say in 11, 25 to 26 that he's the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. He promises eternal life to whoever has this wisdom from God, this knowledge from above, knows God and believes. Not only do they live now, they have eternal life. And this is the preaching of the message of the apostles. And Paul, he, he contrasts two wisdoms in his preaching in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25. There is the wisdom of the world. And the people of the world think the preaching of Christ is absolute folly and stupidity. But he says this, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those of us who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Wisdom from above. First lesson, there's two competing wisdoms for your life, always. Second, wisdom is essential for living your life. Not just for living, for eternal life. Lastly, God is sovereign over adversity in your life. God is so sovereign over adversity in your life. This is verses 13 and 14. These conclude Solomon's thoughts related to wisdom and adversity. The wise will do what he says in these verses, verses 13 and 14. The wise will do what he says. Consider the work of God. This is the first thing he says. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Consider it. Consider the working of God in the Bible in times of adversity and suffering and pain in people's lives. Consider how God has worked and consider in your own life how God has worked in that in the past. And then this phrase, can, can, can you make straight what God has made crooked? That one, don't, don't impose upon that that God is doing something morally crooked. That's not how they used language back then. That's how we use language. He's a crooked person. That's not what it's saying. It's saying something more like this. Can you take a circle and make it into a straight line? No. All right, that's a universal truth. That's what we call one of those truths that's inconvenient for people who don't believe in God. You can't do it. That might be a little too nice or neutral. I'll say it uh, another way, a little bit harder maybe to accept. You're an orderly person. Like you're an orderly person. You got your life all planned out. You got everything in order. Everything's got its place. You got your 25-year plan. You got your 10-year plan, your 5-year plan. You know what you're going to do this year. You got it all planned out, how it's all going to go. And then God comes in and says, I'm a better planner and organizer than you. And he takes your life and he bends it. That's what is meant here. Can you straighten it back out after God bends it? You can't. Adversity, calamity, suffering, pain, all means that God uses to accomplish his purpose for us in our life. Consider his work, he says. Consider his work. And then in verse 14, he continues. Consider is the word he uses again. He adds to this, in prosperity be joyful. You guys don't need any help doing that, I'm pretty sure. Right, you got that one down. But in the day of adversity, he says, consider. He says it again, consider. God has made one as well as the other. God made both days for you. Consider is an interesting word. The root of it is to see. To see. And contextually, it obviously means to think about. See it in your mind. See this reality in your mind. Contemplate it. Work it around in your mind. God made the day of adversity. It's not the product of chance, in other words. You, the things that happen to your life, they're not chance encounters. What a horrific, terrifying place to live if everything operated by chance and accidents or, or blind fate 
I've met people believe in fate. That fate is blind. Uh, your destiny will happen, but there is no meaning behind it whatsoever. This is not that either. My son, Drake, he had, and I got his permission for it. You probably wonder, get the permission. He had everything planned out. Everything is good and great. Got a college already locked in to play baseball at with a scholarship. Good grades. He's going to get be able to just to coast it out on a senior year. He barely even goes to school because he got all the school done. You know, he's like there like half the time. Uh, have a great senior year. Play some baseball in the spring. You know, no pressure. You already got your school locked in. Just get to have fun with your friends. And then one Friday evening, one Friday evening, in Woodward, Oklahoma, the coach calls in. And he calls in an option, option right. Hike the ball to the quarterback. Quarterback rolls out to the right. Outside linebacker comes up to tackle the quarterback, pitches it to Drake. Drake gets it. He takes off running, and there he goes. And when he hits full speed, I'm like, that's it. Safety's got to hit him, and you're going to hit him at full speed. Uh, it's not going to stop him. Touchdown. Hits the sideline, plants the right leg to cut it right back up the field, falls over, collapses, ball flies in the air, first fumble in four years. ACL snaps in half. All his dreams may be gone in one step. Major surgery follows, can't drive. Nine months of painful rehab just to get back to where he was. High school baseball's over. All because of one step. Now, what are his options? What's he got? Well, he can contend with God, I suppose. He can contend with God. That's what some people do. But that's futility. Can man contend with one greater than he? Can man contend with the Almighty? Or he can do what Scripture tells him to do. He can believe what Scripture actually says. Proverbs 69 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Metaphorically? Literally. A man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. One step. That's all it took. His life's altered. A great mystery for sure. But true nonetheless. And so he can consider the work of God in his life, how he's bent him. And he can do what Solomon says here. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And also in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other. And then he can use wisdom and discern how is God redirecting my life? What am I to learn? How am I to change? It's difficult for us to, to go to this place, but this is where we must go because this is where Scripture takes us. Charles Spurgeon, he has said many things way better than I can. He said, It is my firm belief that everything in heaven and earth and hell will be seen to be, in the long run, parts of the divine plan. Yet never is God the author or an accomplice of sin. Brethren, if God does not rule everywhere, then something rules where he does not. And so he is not omnipresently supreme. If God does not have his will, someone else does. And so far that someone is a rival to God. I never deny the free agency of man or diminish his responsibility, but I dare never invest the free will of man with omnipotence, for this were to make man into some sort of a god, an idolatry to be loathed. Moreover, admit chance anywhere, and you have to admit chance everywhere, for all events are related and act one upon another. I dare not believe even sin itself to be exempted from the control of providence or from the overruling dominion of the judge of all of the earth without providence. We are unhappy beings. Without the universality of divine power and providence, providence then would be imperfect. And in some points, we might be left unprotected and exposed to those evils, which are, by this theory, supposed to be beyond God's control. We have learned 
some lessons that are easy to apply. There are two wisdoms competing for your life. Easy to apply. Uh, take the wisdom from above. Um, wisdom's essential for living. Easy to apply that one to our life. But what about this third one? God's sovereign over the adversity and the pain in your life. Before we apply it, I think we should pause for a minute just to acknowledge this is all over the Bible. Okay, We're just prone to not reading the Bible with this I. <clears throat> Abraham, think of his life of uh, missteps. Let's call a lot of them self-induced. Um, he couldn't see the perspective of where things were going, but he lived by faith. He lived by faith according to God's promises. Think about Joseph's life. Joseph may be the greatest example in the Bible of this. Sold into slavery by his brothers, thrown into prison unjustly. God providentially, he makes him the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh's right-hand man. His brothers try to beg for mercy. Uh, we're sorry we did this to you. You know, they're worried. And he says, God did it. That's his perspective. God did all this for all of their good. Naomi and Ruth. You ever think about Naomi and Ruth? <laughs> story, the beginning of the story. I mean, it's, it's plague. It's famine. Husband dies. Sons die. Husbands die. They have no perspective to know. God's providentially working in all of this. David's grandfather will be born because of this story. We have a, a, a really limited perspective. David, David could not possibly even begin to imagine when he was running from Saul all that God had in store for his life and what God would do through him in the sending of his son. It's everywhere. But there's no greater example of, of, of the mystery of how adversity and pain and suffering and human responsibility meet and how God, through all of that, blesses people beyond what they can possibly even imagine than the crucifixion of Christ. Acts 2, 22-25. Men of Israel, hear, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There's the gospel in a nutshell. That Christ has died for sinners. He was put on a Roman cross. He was knelt there and he bled and died, not for his own sins, for our sins. And who put him there? God, God's plan. The sovereignty of God that great adversity that he faced, all of the pain that he had faced planned by God, and who put him there. Moral, free agents, acting freely, responsible for their sin. A great mystery. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, here's the great hope that we have, that we do face adversity, but we have a God who doesn't theoretically know what it's like to live in this world. Like God knows all things, everyone says that. Pick a religion that has a God. We say God experientially knows what it's like to suffer and to have pain in their life because Christ has a real human nature, not a theoretical one. He is truly God and truly man and entered into this world of pain and suffering, dying for sinners, rising from the grave, conquering sin and death and offering hope in eternal life, an eternal perspective, to anyone who would repent of their sin and come to him by faith. And I pray that that's you today. I pray that you today would come to know Christ. Turn from your sin. You've thought your whole life. You know what's good for you. Who knows what's good for man? You've said up to this day, I do. Repent of that. God knows what is good for man and what is good for you is to come to Christ. It's the best good that God could ever do for you. I pray that you would turn to him today. If you're here today and you are a Christian, you should take heart. 
You should take heart knowing that God has even planned every day that you face in adversity. Not a surprise, not a chance encounter, not a coincidence, not an accident. All planned by a loving, caring father that cares for his people. There's no hardship that he hasn't planned. There's no unfortunate event. But we should also know this, uh, brothers and sisters, that we never go into adversity alone. It is an impossibility having been indwelled by the Spirit of God that Christ has sent to us. We now have fellowship with God. He never leaves us or forsakes us. We never go into this alone. We're never by ourselves. And we have our brother, Christ, who has suffered. Do we suffer? He already did. Do we know sorrow and pain? He's taken our sorrows and our pain and affliction upon himself. He understands. And he wrote, he wrote these words, by the way. He's the author of Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Who knows what's good for man? God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Who knows what is good and what is our good? In that passage, what is our good? To be conformed into the image of Christ. So in the day of adversity, don't face it like a pagan. Don't face it like a deist. Face it like a Christian. With faith. With the eyes of faith. Knowing that both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity, God has decreed them both. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that we would take this word that you have given us through your servant Solomon, and that we would be wise, that we would take the wisdom from above, apply it to our hearts and our lives, so that we might prepare for the time of adversity that inevitably will come, that you have appointed for us to conform us into the image of your Son. We long for the day, Lord, that there will be no more adversity and pain and suffering. We long for that day. And we know uh, that because of Christ, we're looking forward. We're pressing on toward that day to where you will take away every pain, you will wipe away every tear from all of our eyes, and there will be no more pain or suffering or death anymore, for the former things will have passed away. But until that day, until that time, we pray that you would allow us and give us the grace that we need to persevere in faith, to see with the eyes of faith beyond our limited perspective. If there are those here that do not know you, I pray that you would work in your spirit, that you would convict them of sin, grant them repentance, leading to eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.